welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infield recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark talks with Hannah Hackathorn. They explore how the internal spaces are becoming more agile and creating high-performance working environments. I'm Hannah Hackathorn. I'm design principal with Unispace. Hannah, we're here in your New York office. Your space that I've walked through here is a very agile workspace. I think you said nobody has a desk. The only thing that they really get assigned is a locker. Yep. That's a very interesting way to go work. Yes, absolutely. Um, It's something that we embraced past two years ago. We used to set up in a more traditional way where everybody had assigned desk, but you know, we, as a trend that we talk about agile working environment and performance work environment, we realize if we can't walk the walk, how can we possibly, you know, recommend it to the client? That's it. You've got to eat your own cooking, don't you? Exactly. So, so, um, but we're not here to go speak about your practice and how you operated here as much as we are of how do you go manage up, how do you manage down and how do you manage across the client organizations that you're working with. And something that interests me about Unispace is that I see the projects that are coming through the award programs from all of your offices have one particular flavor, which is they're all about high performance workspaces. That must mean you've got some pretty switched on clients who know how to ask for that. Some clients are definitely savvy enough to ask for that, um, but it's some are also our responsibility to be able to collaborate with our client to bring that awareness to them. Um, you know, I think the design has came such a long way. Um, the way that our client used to be, it was somebody more of an executive level and they're assigned to the project, but they really weren't part of the or don't necessarily have an awareness of how their employee actually physically work or what productivity really means for them. But what we're really seeing is that when they're really making up what they call steering committee or the design committee, they're putting huge emphasis on picking those you know, workers or employees within their organizations who understand how they operate of the different departments and disciplines. So by working closely with them, we're able to really extract um, what it means for their individual departmental groups to be productive and asking the right questions and trying to extract as much as possible. Okay, so we've got some. We've got a mixture of clients here. Some that you're helping to lift up their understanding of what the spaces could be. You've got some other clients who are actually demanding of you. We want one of these that does this particular thing. Mm-hmm. So that must mean that there's some different ways that you're managing up to those clients, because some of it will be that you're managing up to be responsive to their um, literacy, mm-hmm. and others that you're actually managing up to help grow that literacy that's mm-hmm. uh, that's taking place on the demand side. Is that do you have different team members to do that, or do all of the people who are running the accounts have the capacity to go manage up in that way? We try to. We definitely have more of an experts who have those uh, information that they can help to share. But all the employees that who are part of our team member, we try to train them and to understand and 
really the key part is listening, listening to clients and what they're saying and be able to drive some of those and asking those questions. And that's something that we put a lot of emphasis on um, training our internal staffs because it's a huge emphasis or a huge part of our design process in the beginning. Without getting that information, we can't really come up with a perfect formula for our client. Um, and that affects everything from the overall aesthetic, but most importantly, really, as we talk about the performance and productivity, if lack of understanding equates to unsuccessful, unsuccessful project, essentially. The prior meeting that I had to, to this or prior, prior interview, was with a company that does digital transformation organizations and we spoke about the way that the successful implementation is because you have something that deals with the conditional requirements in particularly in the middle management often the design goes and actually looks at senior management and then it looks at the coal faces it's referred to and they forget that there's a an intermediate culture that takes place in the organisation. So you, you mentioned that you're trying to listen and respond to that there. Mm -hmm. When we were doing our little pre-discussion for the interview, you mentioned that it's actually then that's where you get the information about what might be the right textures, what might be the right colouring, what's the, what's the right solution because of the culture that is pre-existing. Is that something which is through match practice that you do that or is there a particular analytical process that you can walk them through? So there's two parts. Sometimes um, the, if the clients are savvy enough, it's more of process that we walk them through. But the things that we've been trying to really emphasize to our clients are what we call space data survey. And that's actually the survey, sort of like online, you know, spay or mon uh, survey monkey or something that people are more familiar with and has a multiple different questions that we structure around the productivity and really try to get those answers from every level of the organization. And it's about, it takes about five minutes for people to conduct the survey and we compile that information into an overall report and then we share them with our clients. By doing so, you're really hearing from bottom all the way to the top. And often case, the folks who are on the top level are somewhat surprised by the answers. Um, they were surprised by, oh, I didn't think that they actually care about X, Y, and Z element or the, the privacy or, oh, I didn't realize that people really are seeking for that collaboration or those ancillary spaces that, you know, we hear about that's important or whatever that may be. Um, and it really brings a huge awareness and that help us to really set the tone of the project and project drivers. Um, and that's probably, I would say, 95% of the time of most of our project go through that process. And so, that, you know, you're using an information gathering uh, process there. You're then synthesizing what does that mean, which is a huge, hugely valuable and match practice expertise-based um, pursuit. But you're not the only people who have talked about upper management being surprised by mm -hmm. what they hear. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we often forget that these expeditions into into a new workspace, mm -hmm. into a, in, we talk of them about it as projects, but... Mm -hmm. The difference to me between a project and an expedition is an expedition you get really knowledgeable people with different skills to go and actually explore, mm -hmm. whereas a project you generally have a specification at the beginning and you go execute it. So one of them is actually predetermined, mm -hmm. let's go do it. The expedition part 
I think our favours us more because we're actually acknowledging there could be some unknowns, mm -hmm. which means that we have to be responsive throughout the cycle. Mm -hmm. And maybe we come up with the execution brief after mm -hmm. we've been through that exploratory expedition. Yep. So you've got your clients and they're now informed about what's happening. Mm -hmm. But most fit-outs from the people in the real estate game, they tell me that they're lasting less than two years. And that fascinates me. Mm. So when the people who are in the large-scale tenancy management say the average of their tenancy and refit out is under two years. Interesting, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, and so that's an interesting data point there because you're then realising that there's a lot of adapting that's happening in workspaces. Mm -hmm. And I, I know we were talking with um, one of the large tech companies and, we're, and we knew that they were very data-orientated. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it must be great because you're now understanding which part of the workplace is working for you and then you can work out how to adapt it. Mm -hmm. And just stone cold hard, the head of, of workplace for them just said, no, actually all we do is we carry that forward into the next space mm -hmm. because we're growing and changing so much that we don't remediate. We actually just take that knowledge forward. Yeah. And I suppose you're finding similar things there where the idea of going in and remediating after a period of time is, is low yeah. because generally people have either um, crashed and because of the, the organisation or they've grown and that they need to bring that knowledge into a new space. Absolutely. I think... Um you know, we've been really fortunate enough to work with a lot of fast growing tech company and they're infamous for those unknowns. They think that they project certain components out and how fast they can grow and what kind of spaces that they ideally would like to have. But the reality is that their change in growth and their change in even company and the, the culture and et cetera, as you said, it could change anywhere from two years. So, um, you know, we're currently working with a really great company and their fastest growing HR um, app, you know, technology company. And they have, they're basing off of their prior experience and what they think or what they thought their employee were seeking. And we've gone through, as we talked about those um, online surveys to really come up with more of a creative ideas. But the projects are, as we're moving through the project, it's evolving. We're changing the scope. We're realizing the programs may need to be more flexible. So I think the huge emphasis are on flexibility in many you know, components, whether it's part of the design, whether it's a headcount, whether it's even MEP scope of work to be able to support that. So as a designer, yes, it's a bit of a daunting task because you're kind of designing to the unknown. Whereas in the past, I, I do think that there was a little bit more set formula. Um, so it does keep us on our toes um, to be able to come up with more unique ideas and how do we really come up with the office of the future that everybody talks about. But I'm not sure if you can ever really project that 100%. We're really adapting as we go and we're learning from each of our clients and you know, we're utilizing our expertise and be able to offer that, but we're adapting and we're growing with our clients as well. And we see that as more of a partnership and working closely with them. And it's that, you know, evolution and adaptive side I find quite interesting. If we went to a sporting analogy and uh, and the coach was saying, I'm going to come up with the gameplay of the future. <laughs> and it's like, what an idiot. <laughs> it's like because your competition is going to get that gameplay. Right. And then you're now 
a gameplay of the past. Right. And and I suppose as we know that it's a business being a competitive environment right. and it has to be responsive to market needs and changes, yeah. they're really after an office of next, mm-hmm. not an office of the future. Correct. And so I wonder who's actually selling all of this future stuff because, you know, there's futurists, there's all, all of these different future things that are out there. Yep. But I don't hear anybody who's saying um, we're actually selling next. Yep. Next sounds a bit short-term, doesn't yep. it? But the reality is you want the coach, you want the strategist who knows how to get to next as fast as possible and knows how to get to next next. Exactly. And I suppose that's that that relationship that you've got with the clients who are yeah. saying, well, for our needs in the short term, yeah. we need a workspace that does this. Some of that's going to be a bit projecting out what they expect their needs are going to be. Yeah. But others will be bringing along some of their past because it's probably the same employees. Exactly. And it's even thinking about how we design and how we identify the space a little bit differently as well. You know, I I do think that people are starting to think about the word flexibility is constantly being thrown around. And part of that is that's driven by our clients and our industry is really reacting to that, whether to furniture, to office fronts or you name it. But it's for us, it's really thinking about, it's not a set in stone anymore, right? It, it could be a conference room, but the day two, it may become a war room or it may become a additional expansion space or it may become a, a layout space where people are doing yogas or gamings or whatnot. So what can we prepare for a client to make that next transition at ease, as easy as possible. That's something that we try to focus on. I don't think that we can predict what it could be. We're just trying to adapt to our client's need and make that as, I guess, painless as possible. Um, that's something that we try to collaborate with our clients. I'm not sure. And I do think that the next office per each clientele could be completely different. I don't think there's a set formula. Um, You know, each discipline, each different industry have a different idea of what the next office should be. And, you know, for us to sit here and have idea, have this general idea that this is what it is, I think that's a little premature. Um, But as a designer, we, I do think that it's our responsibility to listen um, no matter whether you're interior or architectural or, you know, product design, it's just listening. What is the desire, um, outcome, what are people seeking and what is, what's driving people to make that decision and react in a certain way. Um, I think if we focus on that, it helps us to find that next transition of the next office a little bit easier. So let's see if we can help people who may who may be hearing that and not understanding mm. exactly how that manifests itself. The current configuration of your office that you've got here, mm-hmm. will that be the same in three years' time? Absolutely not. Fantastic. So there's, there's the litmus test. It will change yep. and you're ready for that, that yep. a- adaption. The current space and configuration you've got, is it one year old, six months old, two years old? Right now, uh, it's been two years. Okay, and we've so you already must be ready evolved. for a change, yeah. Yep, so. and we're evolving as we speak and we're already looking to um, think about what is our next office. And then, so when was the previous iteration before that? Was it, Ooh. you know, are they like, a, is it a 12-month to three-year type 
a cycle where you come through these different versions of the no, office? So previous iteration, two years prior to um, us being at our old layout, we've probably stayed in that location for three years and we didn't change. And that was not a very good cultural fit for us. So, listeners, uh, one of the one of the difficulties that happens with a with a podcast is you can't see either of our faces, <laughs> and and which is which can be a good thing as well. But there, but there was a reaction that happened when I earlier on when I mentioned the people who are in the letting industry that they know that the average is two years, yeah. and just through a couple of very simple questions, we found that you're in that similar averaging two year cycle. Yep. But Hannah, the look on your face when I mentioned how long a fit out lasted for, yep. you had that look like, well, that might be a bit shorter than I, you know, I was surprised. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I think that's important to reflect on yeah, that because absolutely. when you begin to drill into it, yeah. you find out, no, actually, it's about two years. Yeah. So then if we've got that understanding, then that can actually, you know, have reference to the sustainability of the spaces that we're putting in because if you're expecting something to last 10 or 20 years, which mm -hmm. was, you know, the marble foyers in buildings, mm -hmm. that's what we hope that they're probably 30 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. You can think about them in a sustainability way in a very different consideration. Absolutely. But if you know that their materials are going to actually be installed and uninstalled in a two- or three-year period... Mm -hmm fixings change yep the the and you've also got to think of how efficient it is to actually take it out right. you're, you're almost running a theater set you know right. i think there's some broadway shows that are lasting longer than corporate offices it's <laughs> very true so so that then changes the the nature of what we're trying to do with fit outs if we have a sustainable hat on very true um and it's a challenging part right because a lot of how we've been practicing isn't necessarily focused around that, right? When you put the carpet down, it's down. Nobody really thinks to pick those back up and put it in the new places. But the things that people do think about now and lack of those, you know, whether it's a conference room or private offices, rather than having a hard-built spaces, thinking it's more of a furniture solution to create more of a delineation. Now, there's a two folds in that one is acoustic privacy and one is a visual privacy and if it's acoustic obviously that leads to more of a hard built construction which kind of goes against the whole sustainability concept there but you know it's something that it's unfortunate and we can't it is it is a necessary evil where people do require those um acoustic private environment where we have no other choice but to have it as a hard built um, but I do think that there are products out there and people are thinking of that to be able to relocate with you because of perhaps those two years short duration. And even to our your point, yes, I mean, it's, when you when somebody just mentioned to you it's a two years duration, it seems awfully short for mm -hmm. someone to spend that kind of capital. But even for our own organization, as we're, you know, evolving, um, it is something that we're thinking about. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's being the idea of the design around that and how to be creative and do, but most importantly, be able to find a solution for your client and still being cognizant with the sustainability. It's definitely challenging. So then that also changes the nature of the relationship with clients mm -hmm. because... If they're looking for their next space mm -hmm. within two years, mm -hmm. 
they probably got an, an, another office or another part of the organisation that they need to do after this project. Mm -hmm. And so there's a holding of IP and understanding of the nature of, of the client's business, mm -hmm. which means that you must be getting some clients that are retained uh, where there's a succession of projects, which wasn't always the way for interior experts because there was a longer period. It was, we'll, we'll see you in about the same time that we replace our washing machine. Exactly. <laughs> and so, exactly. Okay, well, that, it, do you keep that relationship going over five to eight years? Right. But if it's two years now, it must have a different account management, relationship management aspect there too. It's constant and it's by, and we don't necessarily see it as just because project is over, that relationship ends. We try to share our market research information with our clients and get them constantly involved and we strive for building that true relationship and collaboration with our clients. So that is something that... Um, as an organization, we do put a huge emphasis, but, you know, it's really a truly partnership. It's, you know, I don't, it used to be such a transactional relationship where you deliver design, client approves, you get an approval, you get paid and you walk away. And just as you said, maybe 10 years down the road, you know, you may get a referral. Whereas now I think that they see you as a, um, problem solver they see you as a partner who can help because they don't a lot of our clients that whom we're dealing with no longer really have that in-house you know design team or facility team that we once saw um, so we become their in-house you know problem solver and um, assisting their needs so you know we may get a call from clients six months after completion hey we just grew really quickly we need to fit out more people or this area is not really working out what can we think differently it's a common practice is something that we're seeing more and more so yeah i mean it's it's exciting part personally for me because that's one of the part that i love building their relationship and building that bond with a client once you have the trust level with your client then that's a half the battle. It's a lot easier to be able to work with them and be able to share your ideas and collaborate with them. So I do think that that's an exciting part. And it takes away some of that sort of the old traditional way of thinking, as, as I said, the tr transactional relationship between the designers and the so there's a, it's it, you know if we go think of the trajectory of the conversation we've had we've we started off talking about well there's probably this high performance space then we've got into how long that's likely to last and because we're talking about performance we headed off into a sport, sporting analogy that actually focused on it's about the next play not this future so we've then shortened down our expectation We've then changed the relationship with the account, which has a flow and impact from that. And now, you, and you've mentioned that you're actually an external partner. Yep. Supplier partner is holding some of their IP and, and the contextual understanding of the organisation, which is a dramatic difference to how people would have traditionally been taught at university. This right. is the nature of how practice runs. So how do you find when you're hiring new people... Do they come with that embedded understanding on them or do you have to orientate them and bring them on board with the uni space way? I think there's a definitely orientation portion of it. Um, and I think some of the younger generation, they have more open-minded understanding of the workplace and they're willing to try something 
completely outside of the box. And in that context, it's a little bit easier to adapt. Um, but in terms of truly understanding that building that relationship with a client and listening to them and becoming their consultant and really the partners, um, that is something that through experience and um, years of experience, you do, you do gain that rather than just given by school. I think the school, it, it's really providing the backgrounds of things that you would require for you to be able to design. But I think that the building that true relationship and understanding and listening skills and all of that is something that through experience is something that you gain. Now, mentioning there the younger generation that's coming through, your LinkedIn profile tells me that you're LEED certified mm -hmm. in there. How many of the young people that come through are ready to go think about more sustainable, uh, more or lower environmental impact in the projects that they're doing? Are they pre-enabled for that or are you having to do some bridging on building that knowledge? I think they're passionate. That's something that I love seeing about a younger generation coming into our workforce and um, strongly believing that that should be a base practice rather than a um, premium. And it's something that we build our you know design practice around. I think the lead certification, all the certifications are great tools and method, but um, there's a lot of element, and I don't think we're unique in a sense. I think a lot of our counterparts and our competitors are really embracing that idea and making it into a general based practice. Um, and perhaps for that reason, um, some of the certification, things like the you know lead certification or lead accreditations, are um, I would I wouldn't say maybe less desire is not the right word, but people are seeking maybe perhaps less of that because they focus more on practicing it rather than having to obtain a either piece of paper or a plaque. Um, I think there's a lot of well-being that's being emphasized on. Um, it's not. A lot has to do with the sustainability as well, but going back to the true human aspect in the workforce, um, it's not just about material or air quality, but it's about how you physically operate in that office or in the work environment and the comfort and um, ease of use and all of that is something that um, there are more emphasis on. Mm. And I suppose there that it's great to know that they're coming through with that as uh, mm. first order thoughts. It also it's great that there's standards that are out there. Mm -hmm. But you know, I'd imagine if they're looking at furniture selection and that they can do something which is a cradle to cradle mm -hmm. uh, product, you know, from a scoring perspective that you're getting right. a, a score benefits that are coming out from that. Which means that we're all getting closer yep. to treading gently on the planet. And there's there's some people who have to go get a particular score because that's a company policy. Correct. There's other people who are, you know, so they're driven to go get that attainment. Other people, it's just good practice. Yep. And it's a good practice, I think, is something that we focus on. Um, you know, it could be, as we talk about furniture, it's about accessibility. And, you know, we've kind of put a lot of emphasis on the ADA, but when we're talking about accessibility, it's for just a general, you know, even understanding the arm, the chair arm width, you know, is that really ease of use for all people, whether you're 
somebody who's 20 years old or somebody who's more senior in that in that office environment are they having an ease time of being getting in and out of the space or in and out of the chairs and just being more human centric and mindful of as you're picking materials or the furnitures or lighting even um and i, I do think that as as a design professional, we need to really be cognizant with that um, rather than just thinking more of an aesthetics and general look and feel. Um, We're past the days where somebody wanted to get a photo of an office with empty chairs and desks, but all of the tables and chairs matched. And so I think, you know, some of those style single shot moments were what was driving yeah. uh, the universal side and we're getting into the application per human per situation yeah. and there's a lot of flexibility there for people exactly yeah hannah this has been an absolute gift to go have a half hour of your time to go find out more about what unispace are doing to hear about the way that you're working in managing up across and down but also to go hear about the sustainability side of how you're actually trying to go work to make sure that you're treading as gently on the planet. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure.